Hi, everyone. I'm Aviva Rumani, and welcome to episode 57 of KindredCast, a bi-weekly podcast featuring insights from dealmakers and thought leaders from the world of tech, media, and everything in between. Today, Scott Galloway, author, media personality, and professor of marketing at NYU Stern School of Business, sits down with Liontree CEO Arie Borkoff. As a serial entrepreneur whose companies include business intelligence firm L2, as well as Red Envelope, Galloway is a co-host of the Vox podcast Pivot with Recode's Kara Swisher, another recent Kindred Cast guest. Join in to hear about Scott and Arie's shared background and thoughts on the educational system, as well as Galloway's many contrarian viewpoints on the tech and consumer landscapes. It's a lively chat for sure, and I hope you enjoy. Hi, everyone. It's Arye Borkoff. I'm pleased to be interviewing today someone who I've followed for quite some time, Professor Scott Galloway. Scott, you are not only a professor at NYU's Stern School of Business, where you teach brand strategy and marketing, but also the founder of L2, which you sold to Gartner a few years ago, Yep. and an author of several best-selling business books. You're known to millions, of course, for your incredibly popular YouTube videos on the state of media, tech, and the consumer landscape overall. Yeah. And most recently, your podcast with Kara Swisher, a yeah. friend of the firm here, called Pivot with Kara Swisher and Scott Galloway. All of our banking analysts here at Lion Tree, big fans. So you can tell how productive they are, but yeah. hopefully it's informing their <laughs> business strategies. But thank you for taking the time and, sure, and coming to see us. It's a pleasure to finally meet you Thanks, face-to-face and to talk through the industry here. Perfect. Thanks for having me. The difficult part about talking to you about the landscape is that you cover a vast amount of material because we yeah, but fo- it's only an inch deep. Yeah, I don't know. We, I think people will be pretty impressed that you know, we, we're going to talk about tech, we're going to talk about media, we're going to talk about the markets, we're going to talk about the concept of globalization. Yeah. But in all these areas, as I've approached this conversation, and obviously my job overall advising companies and being a student of the landscape, there are two sides to every coin, and sure. we're at a moment where you could easily call a winner scenario or a loser scenario sure. or a glass half full or a glass half empty. And it's probably a point of where we are in the, in the market cycle overall. But I want to start with education because that's your core role. You're a professor at NYU. You deal with and teach students all the time. It's a millennial group, maybe even a Gen Z group in some cases. Yeah. We've had a lot of conversations recently about our educational system being potentially elitist. Yeah. We're both students of the UC system. You went to UCLA, I went to UC San Diego. Nice. Yeah, yeah. And so I had residency and it was uh, cost effective. Uh, um, amen, brother. Yeah. and uh, $7,000 total tuition. Correct, not even tuition, me. like fees, right? Yeah, um, And I chose UC San Diego because Great San school. Diego and they had this campus uh, college program where the big university felt much more personal when you were in these college campuses. So I was at Muir College, which was a, more of a liberal arts humanities view. And I also liked the fact that it was a growth school. I knew the school that I went to would be different in the future than it was in the past because it was constantly being invested in and growing and learning new things. And I love that. Yeah, great school. Yeah. So the education system is now getting a new lens and a microscope. We saw recently Robert Smith, chairman of VISTA, do a great move and forgive student loans at Morehouse College. So what's happening in the education sure. system? What are you seeing? And maybe educate us there. This is something I'm really passionate about. Let me start with just a moment of gratitude. It's easy to credit your grit and your character for your success and blame the markets for your failures. And I have no such delusion. And this is really, it's generally not a humble brag. I'm generally trying to be grateful and a little bit humble. I'm here with you right now because of the generosity and vision of California taxpayers and the regents of UC. 
if I hadn't gotten into UCLA and I got in on appeal with a fairly underwhelming GPA, but I didn't test well either, if they hadn't taken a risk on, and they described me when they called me and told me they were letting me in as a native son of California, I just wouldn't be here. It started an upward spiral that took an unremarkable kid and gave me remarkable opportunities. And I worry that that is no longer the case, that as academics, and I put myself into that category, we no longer think of ourselves as public servants. We think of ourselves as luxury brands. And at NYU and at Stanford, we brag about the fact that 95% of the people who apply get rejected, which to me is like being proud of running a homeless shelter where you turn away 95% of the homeless. Stanford has triple the applicants that had 30 years ago. They haven't increased their freshman class size by one seat, so they can all be drunk on exclusivity. And we've also raised prices faster than any other sector other than healthcare versus inflation with no underlying increase in product quality. So an example of that, I'll teach 180 kids on a Monday night. They spend 7,000 bucks each. That's $1.2 million in tuition for me in front of a slide projector for 12 nights or $100,000 a night. And most of that is taken on in debt. And what does that debt mean? That debt means that people get married later. It means they form households later. It means they're less likely to start businesses. So whereas the university system in the United States used to be the lubricant for upward mobility for middle-class kids like me to get into the affluent class, it's become the sand in the gears. We've totally lost the script around higher education. And that is, we like to believe we're a meritocracy. We aren't. The U.S. is a caste system. And the caste system is the following. It's higher education. And despite a number of highly publicized college dropouts, the Steve Jobs, the Bill Gates, the Jay-Z, you should assume your son is not Jay-Z. You should assume your daughter is not Beyonce. These are the exceptions. Yeah, the 0.0001%. And the reality is, we have a caste system and it's called higher education. Your economic velocity in your 20s kind of sets the tone for the rest of your life. And the college you went to sets the tone for your economic velocity in your 20s. It is a caste system. It didn't with you or me, right? We had access to education because I have the same background, middle-class background. I really was benefiting from the UC system being a public school system. But on the way out, you're on your own. Yeah, but coming out of UCSD, coming out of the UC system, so I went to UCLA. I got a job at Morgan Stanley. I almost didn't go to college. I mean, literally, I was within seven days of not going to college. I was going to be installing shelving for 18 bucks an hour, and that seemed like a lot of money. And my dad coached me not to go to college. He was like, 18 bucks an hour, don't give that up. My parents both pulled out of school when they were 13 years old. And UCLA started an upward spiral for me to Morgan Stanley, then to Berkeley for graduate school. And then it just started this upward spiral. I'm talented. I'm not a humble person. I think I'm outstanding. I think I'm in the top 1% globally, which puts me in a room the size of Germany. And I live a life that's much better than the top 70 million people. And it's because I had access to remarkable state-funded education. That no longer exists at the same level it used to. Our system, the University of California, hasn't totally lost the script. Seven of the 10 universities in the U.S. with the greatest level of income diversity are UC campuses. But in general, the goal of academics is that as we have raised prices faster with this incredibly inefficient union called tenure, for the undereducated, we have welfare in the form of food stamps and unemployment. For the overeducated, we have welfare in the form of tenure. We have massive out-of-control spending, cost increases, a cartel, and we have universities, including Harvard, that with a $38 billion endowment, brag that they could have doubled their freshman class last year without any sacrifice in quality. And then the obvious next question is, well, then, brother, why aren't you doing it? Because what has happened is for the first time in our nation's history, a 30-year-old is less well-off than his parents were at 30. And I think it's largely because we've all been downgraded. And that is good kids get to go to average schools 
Average kids go to shitty schools. And by the way, they're all paying the same amount, which results in incredible student debt. And then kids like me don't even get to go to college. If I hadn't gotten into UCLA, I might've been able to go to Pepperdine and I wouldn't have had the confidence to borrow the kind of money you need to borrow right now. So there's some very good things. More girls are going to college. That's a great thing. A remarkable kid from the inner city can find Harvard and Harvard can find them. That's a fantastic thing. But what if you're just good and you're from the middle class? You still go to college, but you go to a worse college and it's a lot more expensive. And we need to adopt more of a system. In my view, we need a Marshall Plan. We need to reduce costs. What the gentleman did down at, was it Morehouse or Spen- Spen- Morehouse, yeah. That's incredible. Yeah. A generous man, but that's not going to solve the problem. Right. Because until we start lowering the cost, until we massively increase the number of seats, such that good kids can go to good schools, maybe even great schools, we're downshifting the opportunities and we're promoting this cast luxury brand-like system. So we should be taxing endowments. If you don't grow your seats faster than population, you're not a nonprofit, you're a private enterprise, boom, we're taxing that endowment. Well, why on earth does Harvard have a $38 billion? The GDP of El Salvador or the endowment of Harvard, and yet they don't want to expand the number of seats? Of the 100 best schools in America, 38 of them have more people from the top 1% of households than the bottom 60. And they're nonprofits? Tax the shit out of them, literally, and start expanding seats at good schools. So kids like me who were remarkably unremarkable still have access to the same remarkable opportunities that you and I had. We have literally lost the script in higher education. I'm biased. I'm very involved with Berkeley. I think the UC system is doing its best. Berkeley will graduate more kids from low-income households this year than the entire Ivy League combined. But this bullshit down at my university, NYU or Columbia, where we brag about how many kids we turn away, that's not a good thing because guess what? Your kid on a risk-adjusted basis, no matter how fond of John you are, is likely going to be pretty similar to you in terms of work ethic, character, intelligence. And he or she is going to a shittier school than you. Well done. So brag about the fact you can't get into your school now. That's a bad thing. Yeah, I feel like- That was a bit of a I, rant. I'm, no, no, I'm I caffeinated this like here. Amazing. I'm juiced up. <laughs> I didn't really even appreciate the fact that we had a similar educational background because I was the only person I know in school at UC to go into Wall Street because I went to Smith Barney, but I was pounding the pavement. It wasn't easy. It was not easy. Not easy yeah. And I remember actually being at the career services group at UC San Diego, interviewing with Goldman, Morgan Stanley, et cetera. Yeah. And they were so unaccustomed to my pursuing Wall Street versus actually the UC or San Diego-based schools or companies. They kind of kicked me out of career services. Like, you can't do these kind of calls from here. So I had to, like, actually go and find that job. It was an unusual track. You went to Smith Barney? Yeah, in high bonds. Yeah, I went to Morgan Stanley. And the reason I chose Morgan Stanley was I heard they didn't drug test or check grades because I lied about my grades and I smoked a shit ton of pot in college. <laughs> there you go. There's yeah, my you're, career. You're an entrepreneur from day there one. There you go, kids. Let me draw a parallel between this elitist educational system we have mm-hmm. and the inequality we have in our country. Yep. Because I think if you're a student or a, a emerging student from areas that are not privileged, you're probably thinking this is not a fair playing field. And it's obviously exacerbated by the overall economic issues that we're facing with income inequality. Yeah. But in my mind, other countries like Germany, you mentioned, yep. have educational systems that are much more vocational driven. So if you yeah. want to be a nurse, yeah. you have nursing school early yeah. on and it helps the labor force really get more parity in terms of having precision and differentiation and expertise earlier on versus a classical liberal arts education. Yeah, so vocational school, when we talk about vocational schools, and they're really important, but we don't like to call what most vocational schools are in Germany, and that is their union. 
because unions typically take on a role of a lot of vocational training. You go into the plumbers or the electric guild or what have you. And in Germany, they just have a different approach. On every public board, you have to have, I think, 40% of your representatives from the employees and oftentimes they're union members. So what do you know? Daimler-Benz or BMW employ hundreds of thousands of people and they start at 28 bucks an hour. Here in the U.S., where we've basically done a Marshall Plan to make rich people richer and have figured out a way with the most innovative transportation company we have, Uber, to separate the nice white college-educated 4,100 employees at headquarters who get to split the value of Boeing, $70 or $80 billion with their investors, and we've managed to figure out a way to justify sequestering all the goods from the 4.1 million workers called drivers. We call them driver partners. Partner is Latin for no health benefits, no minimum wage protection, and basically a payday loan where you run down the value of your car because you're desperate for a good job. And we've decided that's okay here. Back in the 70s and the 80s, if you started on the shop floor at General Motors, you made 28 bucks an hour. We've essentially decided, okay, the American model, our objective used to be when you and I were growing up, We want to create millions of millionaires. If you play by the rules, you save money, a little bit of luck, go to school, that by the time you retire, you can have a million bucks. In the U.S., it was reasonable to think you could be a millionaire. That's the American dream. And we created millions of those households. And it feels like our new goal collectively as a society, we want to crown dozens of billionaires. That's our new goal. Because everybody believes, oh, my kid can be the next Steve Jobs. Oh, I know somebody who works at Google. Well, guess what? There's fewer than you think. The new business formation in the U.S. has been cut in half. 15% of companies used to be less than a year old. Now it's 8%. During the Carter administration, there were twice as many companies started every day than there are now. Everyone likes to think we're living in an era of innovation. Yeah, your phone's more powerful than the Saturn V. But in terms of new business formation and opportunities for young people, we are living in an era of non-innovation. We used to have these Marshall Plans I think the most innovative thing of the 20th century, one of the most innovative things, was the Marshall Plan. We kneecapped the Germans after World War I, super productive society. They figured out a way to come back in a very angry way. Then we said, okay, let's go different. Let's take trillions of dollars of U.S. taxpayer money, and let's turn Japan and Germany into allies. Seriously, what fucking genius, right? (laughs) That was a massive investment in something. Europe does kind of Marshall Plan big investments in infrastructure. Italy, high employment, ridiculously unproductive economy, but they can get you from Zurich to Milan in two hours, right? They've made this Marshall Plan of public infrastructure. Everyone benefits from public infrastructure. We have a Marshall Plan in the U.S., and we've decided that we're going to double down on rich people, that they're our most productive people. They're our new Jesus Christ. We used to worship at the altar of character and kindness. Now we worship at the altar of tech billionaires. So I know, let's cut their taxes. Let's figure out tax breaks. So the first $10 million out of a venture-backed company is tax-free. Let's create the mother of all welfare queens. Is this a good thing, that the wealthiest man in the world is a cost to our society, that we are subsidizing him? But wouldn't you say the other side of that is he doesn't sell a stock because he believes in his company. He keeps putting more investment into the company. He keeps innovating new products and services that benefits our society. It's better than him putting a boatload of cash on the side saying, I've been rich myself. I'm actually putting back everything into the company, my employees, and expanding and creating jobs and growing around the world. Isn't that a better thing? So let me be clear. On a net basis, Amazon is a net benefit for the world. On a net benefit, you'd rather have Amazon than not have it. But the trouble I have is with the word net. I think we're net beneficiaries from fossil fuels, but we still have emission standards. I think we're net beneficiaries from pesticides, 
but we still have an EPA. That's the world is gray, right? There's no black and white. It's a winner and a loser. But what we have a tendency to do is go, well, is Amazon good or bad? Well, on the whole, they're good. Okay, leave them alone. Right. Well, what we have is an economy and a tax system that has not evolved to maintain the American dream, and that is to promote the greatest source of good in the history of mankind, and that's the American middle class that arrested Hitler and figured out a way to cure polio. We are literally kicking that source of good in the nuts every fucking day right now. And one of those ways is we have a tax policy that smart people game. Apple and Google aren't running around with their hands out in New York, and they're massively increasing their jobs. But distinct to that, the real guilty party here is you and me. Unless we elect leaders that are smart enough to understand that our tax code does not work in an economy where a marketplace will make a company the third most valuable company in the world without it ever paying meaningful taxes. What does that mean? Nobody can compete against right, them. Right, but is it tax and capital yep. is one solution, Yep. and those certainly need adjustments and fixes, in your view, probably a grand you know, redo. But there's also labor, right? Yep. And my point is, like, even with your students, there probably is a much higher percentage today than ever before that wake up every single morning saying, I could create a new company to fulfill the needs of our society in technology, and I could be one of these entrepreneurs. And they probably want to learn from you of how they could do that every single day. And they never felt that way growing up, where I was growing up. No one ever felt that they could create companies from an undergraduate level higher. Yes and no, because I think they feel that way or they're taught to believe that. But the reality is, look at the most productive parts of our economy or the fastest growing. You might say, search, digital marketing, tech hardware, AI, self-driving, all the kind of parts you say, wow, that's booming, they're duopolies. Try and start a company in search. See if you can get funding. You and I want to start an e-commerce company. Fastest growing channel in the world, most valuable is U.S. e-commerce. One company has 51 cents on the dollar. So the most productive, fastest growing parts of our economy, which should be creating the most jobs and should be creating the most new businesses, I sit in a ton of venture capital meetings. I advise several venture capital firms, and the pitch from every entrepreneur is the same thing. We don't compete with Amazon, Apple, Facebook, and Google, but we'd be great acquisitions. <laughs> so kids are starting companies to be acquired. The basic gestalt and startup, I've started nine companies. When I was starting companies in the 90s and early 2000s, it was like, okay, I need two or three million bucks. I think I can make this thing worth 30 to 100, maybe 200 million. And there were investors in there. Now all the investment capital has gone to, okay, let's spread a bunch of chips across the table. Let's see who's the emerging leader. And then let's give this kid who ideally dropped out of Harvard, worked for Bridgewater for a couple of years, and is a bit awkward and an asshole to his employees. If you're just talented and you're a CEO, you're talented. If you're talented and a real asshole, you're a genius. We've created this very uncomfortable gestalt or approach. Throw hundreds of millions, identify that company as a leader, and then that leader kind of crushes everyone with cheap capital. And more power to them. That's the right strategy. That's what results in these outsized valuations. But the problem is if the one leader can get the kind of capital such that they're never profitable and they crush everybody else along the way, we end up with a very non-diverse ecosystem. We end up with an ecosystem where these companies never pay taxes. Where actually, I think kids coming out of college today, it's never been easier to be a billionaire. It's never been harder to be a millionaire. <laughs> And that is, I know there's a billionaire in my class of 180 kids. I also think a third of them are going to be living at home at some point or on government assistance. Whereas when I came out of school, we all knew we were going to make a pretty good living. I do love capitalism. We believe in winners and losers. I'm not against that. That's where you're going, which is where tech needs to go vis-a-vis -vis regulation and government. You said before about tech companies, yeah. Google is God, Facebook is love, Amazon is our gut, Apple is our sex appeal. 
maybe there's a fifth on there also that you're thinking about in the Pantheon, but describe like those kind of compliments or accolades or traits to these tech companies. This is going back to education. The dirty secret of business school is we don't need a second year. The first year is really powerful. Teach them the basics. The second year is basic bullshit, so we can charge them 140,000 in tuition instead of 70. If we were honest, what we would do is we would teach four classes. And those four classes, the second year would be Amazon, Apple, Facebook, and Google. Because to understand those four platforms is to understand commerce, media, economics, the markets. So one of my sessions in my class is called The Four. And I teach about these four platforms. I think you got to understand these guys. Yeah, sure. As we go through and we talk about them, my feeling is if you want to build a trillion-dollar company, you've got to directly appeal to a basic instinct. Distinct of your subscriptions to the Financial Times or graduate degrees, we're all animals. And I think the reason these companies are so successful is, one, Google is our modern god. As we become more educated and affluent as a society, reliance on church and a super being declines, but we still need answers. We still need a God or someone we trust. Google is your God. Imagine your name, Aria, in your face above every Google search you've ever done. That's social chaos. Google knows when you're thinking about getting engaged. It knows when you're contemplating divorce. It knows your sexual fetishes. It knows if you have diabetes. It knows more than anyone in the world. And you trust it more. We used to pray. We used to say, will my kid be all right? Now we go on to Google and we type in symptoms and treatment of croup. You trust Google more than any mentor, priest, rabbi, scholar. It's our God. Facebook holds out the hope of new connections, reinforcing and catalyzing relationships. Ideally, at its core, at least the promise is love. And we found out that's not really the reality. Amazon is our consumptive gut. You have more stuff, you get through the winter. The penalty for too much is diabetes, lethargy, gluttony, but there's a long lag to the side effects of that. The penalty for too little stuff is the worst death in the world, and that's starvation. And that's been the number one ailment and the number one killer of our species for millions of years. So we just have this ingrained notion of more is better. Open your cupboards, open your closet, open your refrigerator, and you go, I just don't need all this shit. You know that rationally? But it is immediately overwhelmed with, yeah, but I'd still like some more. I'd like that in gray, blue, and black. I don't want Rotterburger beer. I want Rotterburger light. And I'd like a case of it. And I need vitamin water zeros. I mean, the consumerism, the need for more to feed our consumptive gut and survive the winter is just unparalleled. More for less is always the gangster business strategy. The economy that does it better is always the fastest growing, whether it's China or India. Scarcity is the kind of romance. Scarcity is a very powerful construct because you can't have it all and you have to make choices and prioritize capital, allocate it the right way, and then be judged on the results. Scarcity governs capital, human behavior, normally speaking. We may have just gotten to a point where capital is plentiful for everybody and it's cheap and it's kind of a wash with everything else. That's what you're saying. Yeah, but it's all based on the notion that just more for less is the ultimate business strategy. And Amazon does that better right now in terms of perception than anyone else. And then finally, moving to the The second most powerful instinct, the most powerful is survival. The second most powerful is propagation. When you have an iOS, you're saying to the world, I'm part of the global affluent class. I can afford to spend $1,300 on a chipset that costs $286. I'm a good storyteller. I'm creative. Have sex with me. As you move down the torso, the margins get better. The entire luxury industry, probably the most profitable industry, has probably more spawned more billionaires, actually, than even tech. Wealthiest man in Europe, Bernard Arnault. Second wealthiest, Inditex Zara appealing to our need to propagate and signal our worth, our superior genes, results in a lot of irrational decision-making, as everyone has experienced. And irrational is business Latin for high margins. You have brain, heart, gut, 
and the genitals. And I would say to any startup, what base instinct are you appealing to? And you got to know that from the very beginning. Okay, so Apple is the sex appeal, right? Apple sex. Okay, so the fifth one you haven't mentioned, which is actually the trillion dollar company, is Microsoft. Yeah. You don't teach about Microsoft? You know, it's been I don't, a survivor all these years. I don't. The voiceover is that it's B2B and I focus on B2C companies. Yeah. The truth is I don't understand their business well enough to speak to it intelligently. If someone said, how does Microsoft make money? I have an idea, but I don't really understand the firm. I think it's an incredible firm. I should write more about it. Quite frankly, I should write more about Alibaba and Tencent. They're incredibly powerful. Now they're in the top 10 in terms of valuation. But Microsoft has always been that company for me where I just can't. It literally, you guys, I can't figure it out. There's something about the Microsoft business. I just, I think Satya Nadella is probably the CEO of the last decade, but I can't figure That's out a Microsoft. I think he's incredible. Yeah, he's great, right? Unbelievable renaissance yeah. there. Yeah, unbelievable. So what about regulation, though, of tech? Because sure. uh, if you talked about Microsoft and Bill Gates, yep. that is the poster child of tech regulation in 2001, 2002, 2003, right? That's where they really ran into the EU for a breakup call. Yeah. Are we back to that moment now where big tech has to get deconstructed to create more opportunities and more fairness? I think the moment was five years ago. So I think we've literally blown by where we used to be. And then as simply put, I think the DOJ and the FTC should do what the Marines, the National Park Service, and the DMV do every day, and that is do their damn jobs. They've literally decided to go asleep at the switch. And their decisions make absolutely no sense. They were threatening to hold up Sprint and T-Mobile. Oh, no, we're bringing together 130 million people to create a number three. 130 million people, that's too powerful. Facebook encrypting WhatsApp, Messenger, and Instagram is creating a unified backbone across 2.7 billion people. But don't let T-Mobile and Sprint merge. It's literally, what are they thinking? How can you have, when the Chinese came in with steel that was priced below the variable cost to try and consolidate the U.S. industry, we called it dumping in the 80s, when Amazon subsidizes a retail platform with profits from AWS, we call it innovation. They should be broken up. I believe regulation needs to have a grounding in intelligent policymaking yep. somewhere, right? Otherwise, it's just rhetoric and talk. So what would be the number one objective of breaking up these companies? What are we trying to accomplish? Competition. That will also give rise to some of the students in your class to develop new businesses that I think be acquired by Google without YouTube and be a replacement for that. More M&A, more jobs, more startups, more competition, better for the planet, better for the economy. The loser is the CEO because he or she is not overseeing as big an empire. And people say, well, do the shareholders lose? If you look at a history of breakups, the shareholders lose in the short term and they win in the long term. When we broke up AT&T, we unleashed massive shareholder value. When eBay spun PayPal, PayPal ended up being more valuable than eBay. These breakups would be accretive to shareholders. It's just the losers would be the senior managers who want to oversee Westeros and all the seven realms. Look, the FTC and the DOJ, the first guy that broke up the railroads was a Republican. And somehow they've convinced us that, oh, we'll be less competitive. No, they'd be more competitive, more shareholder value. So I'm not actually a big regulation guy. If you go to GDPR, that's just helped the incumbents. That just made it harder for the little guys. Right, created more cost for everyone to come in. And more compliance. And if Google wants me to sign something, I'll sign it because I need Google. Some little company, DuckDuckGo or another digital market, maybe I don't need it. That's why I say regulation needs to be grounded in fact and intellectual thought, not just regulation for the sake of it. Yeah, it needs to be smart regulation. So the Content Decency Act, I think it was in the late 90s, actually written by a Republican out of Oregon, said that these emerging nascent technologies shouldn't be subject to the same scrutiny and the same liability as traditional media firms. So that made sense to me. 
these companies are no longer nascent. If we could reverse engineer that this podcast was making our kids depressed and they were showing up in emergency rooms with self-cutting and self-harm, you and I would be in a world of trouble. They would probably say, well, you need to stop this podcast. If they found out MSNBC was doing that, they would probably be in a world of trouble and Comcast would get sued. But these companies, these nascent companies, i.e. the most valuable companies in the world, have legislation that exonerates them from the same scrutiny as other media companies. So I don't even think it's adding new legislation or regulation. I think it's removing old regulation. Subject them to the same scrutiny as everybody else. Yeah, putting new structures in place, right? So I want to get to content because this is an area where, again, there is the winner glass half full view and there's the loser glass half empty view, meaning that it's a renaissance for great original programming. There are more 100%. scripted series than ever before. Oh, yeah. Everyone has their favorite shows. Every time yeah. you get recommendations left and right. And there are streaming platforms which can get content directly to the consumer around yeah. kind of the broadcast or cable models that were yeah. normally, you could call them gatekeepers, but obviously yeah. had the consumer relationships directly. But we're also seeing a lot more competition. If you add up the projections or the goals of the streaming platforms across yeah. the video platforms, they probably add up to more than the size of our country. So yeah. there have to be winners and losers somewhere. Yeah. And so who are the winners and losers in the content space? I think you're going to forget more about this than I'm going to know. But I think in 100 years, we're going to look back on this age and say that the defining art form was television, scripted television. I think Netflix is going to spend more on scripted television this year and one year than was spent by all media companies in the entire 90s decade. Between legalized marijuana and Netflix, it's just a great time to be alive. It just makes for awesome weekends. What you have, though, is what's strange in the media industry, and this is happening across several industries, is you have such extraordinarily cheap capital diving into the space that it's disrupting the traditional players. Now Amazon has said, if we make The Marvelous Mrs. Mizell, it can sell more paper towels, and we have a zero cost of capital— so I think you're going to see such massive disruption in the space. So the losers are anyone who's, quite frankly, traditional media company that's, first off, ad-supported. Why? Because advertising is essentially the tax that the poor and the technologically illiterate have to pay. How do you know you have money? You're not subjected to this shitty thing called advertising. Watch CNBC. Average age of 66 is basically a lesson in how much it sucks to be old. I call it catheter television. CPAPs, walkers cholesterol drugs, basically, they might as well just say, it really sucks to be old. So young people with money, what does their media have in common? What does almost every media platform that's growing have in common? It's not ad-supported. And the ones that are ad-supported have unbelievable multi-billion person-like scale and unbelievable targeting capabilities. So we know the winners. Amazon is the new winner. It's going to be probably one of the five largest media companies in the world. Because Because it's a subsidy against their commerce business. So the most valuable shelf space in a grocery store is the checkout line. It takes some time. You're sitting there. It's impulse purchase. I'll get some gum. Most expensive shelf space, most valuable shelf space. Amazon has basically checkout shelf space the size of Texas because 50% of all transactions are taking place on Amazon. And they know that if you put a pair of Huggies in your basket, that maybe P&G with Pampers would like to run an ad at that moment for Pampers. That's an incredibly compelling proposition. So Morgan Stanley thought they would do four and a half billion at Amazon Media Group in 18. They did 10 and a half, 10 and a half billion dollars in media, an e-commerce company. They monetize one in six searches. Walmart.com and Target.com monetize one in 50 and one in 100 searches respectively. So it's not easy to do. There's incredible technology there. But the fastest growing media company in the world over a billion dollars is Amazon. 
which is just incredible when you think yeah. about that. And then when you talk about the full stack or the full funnel in marketing, the only one that may have the full funnel right now is, in fact, Amazon, because you have the top of the funnel with Amazon Media Group with the marvelous Mrs. Mizell and this new, my new favorite show, the show called Fleabag, now that Game of Thrones is over, which I'm still in withdrawal over. But they have enough money to try and figure it out. There's cultural overlays and culture and process that are barriers of entry. HBO manages to do better things than all of them on a fraction of the budget. HBO is better than Netflix. HBO is hands down better than Amazon Video with a fraction of the spending because they have figured out a way to create a culture of creativity. Over time, that wall will be breached by capital. Can HBO thrive underneath AT&T's ownership? I think HBO has such an incredible culture, such incredible loyalty, such an incredible reputation among the secret sauce, which is A-list talent. A-list talent just likes to work with HBO. And it sounds basic, but Al Pacino isn't doing anything for Cinemax. He's just not going to do it. He doesn't return their calls. So the most talented people in the world like working with HBO. Can you scale content? Or is content supposed to be a boutique feature? I think in the case of HBO, they're a luxury brand, and they stay high-end, premium, high-margin, exclusive. I think they should probably should raise their price, quite frankly, but they aren't going to be able to bulk up against the cheap capital of a Netflix, of an Amazon, and now Disney. Disney's the other gangster in the space now because Robert Disney's Iger, a winner, yeah. Oh, 100%. Every year I call someone a fifth horseman. In 2017, my fifth horseman was Netflix. Stock went from 90 to 300. 2018, I said Disney. And then I said Spotify. I got Spotify wrong. Another example of a company being killed by a monopoly. Superior service to Apple Music. And now Apple Music is growing faster. Why? Because it's a monopoly. Bob Iger is one of the few guys that has the credibility to tell his board, yeah, earnings might get hit hard. Where I think Disney may have blown it, I would have done a grand Netflix-like offering instead of these niches of ESPN, Hulu. I would have done one big offering, and I would have rolled in the parks. Everyone who has kids has to go to Disney. You just can't be a good dad and not take your kids to Disney one weekend. And if they'd said, all right, Disney, Disney Flicks, Disney Plus, Best Sports, Han Solo a week early in your house, Dumbo, the Handmaid's Tale. It's all Disney flicks. And by the way, there's 100 days a year, 50 days a year in Orlando and Anaheim where there's a third of the crowds, access, no lines, and it's only for Disney flicks members. By the way, when you want to go on a cruise with your parents, the best cabins are for Disney flicks members. I think they could have charged 50 or 60 bucks a month for that. I think any family with any money would have to do this. Instead, they're going after traditional brand management, and that is they're segmenting their user base and trying to go after this thing with a multi-brand conglomerate model. Well, isn't that, isn't, isn't that, the reason they're doing that most likely is because they secure a moat around their strategy, right? Because no one else can do what they're doing. They have the best brands in the business, so to speak. That is a perfect coexistence with Netflix, which is obviously, like you said, the catch-all. So Disney is basically saying, we have bespoke brands and affinity towards our brands that people will end up paying for versus the Netflix brand, which people will just do use as a supermarket. When you talk about tectonic shifts in our economy. Uh, I teach brand strategy, and yeah. I think the era of brand is coming to an end. The traditional metric or algorithm for creating value from 1945 to call it the introduction of Google was take a mediocre product, a mediocre shoe, a mediocre sugary drink, a mediocre beer, a mediocre car, and come up with unbelievable brand codes. Masculinity, European elegance, sexy, hot, youthful, whatever it might be, a good dad, maternal love, choosing moms, choose Jeff and run these brand codes, pound away at these brand codes using this incredibly inexpensive and efficient medium called broadcast television, and then stuff the channel with it and sell 30 cents with a butter paste for three bucks 
because choosing moms choose Jeff, sell a mediocre truck that costs $18,000 to build for $30,000 because you're like a rock. These are fantastic associations. That era is coming to an end because we have now these weapons of diligence that tell us, if I go to London, I don't need to say at the Four Seasons of the Ritz-Carlton, which I used to defer to all the time because usually someone else was paying and it's always a seven or an eight. I do a search on TripAdvisor, I go on my social graph, I go on Google, and I find that the Ferndale hotels are better for me and I can get them at a better price probably. So the weapons of diligence have gotten so much better that we can cross the sea of the unknown that the brand used to serve using just really fantastic research. There's more transparency, less spin, right? The bottom line is the brand just isn't as strong. General Motors, Procter & Gamble, Unilever, these companies had incredible brand managers that hired all these kids from my class and said, let's find niches and let's figure out unique value propositions, different design, different logo, different advertising. And I think the consumer has gotten so busy, and I think there's so many offerings now, that if you look at the companies that have aggregated a tremendous amount of shareholder value, they're usually what I would refer to as branded houses as opposed to house of brands. Google, Apple. These are just monster brands that say, yeah, we're going to have a phone, we're going to have this service, we're going to have an app store, but it's all Apple. It's just all going to be Apple. Doesn't that enhance credibility in some cases? Like if you're looking at all these options if you're a consumer today and your head's spinning... If it's That's attached to a brand like Apple or Google, you say, okay, I can at least I trust it. I understand it. If Google puts their logo on a refrigerator, I'm buying it. It means great design. It means it connects with other things easily. It means it's easy to set up. Right. Boom, I'm in. If Apple put their logo on almost anything, I would buy it at this point. And I understand they need discipline not to do that. But Disney's pursuing what I would call a house of brands model. And it's also hard for them to go all in on one master offering because they're probably in the short run would lose revenues. I think they're trying to change a tire while going 90 miles an hour. I get the strategy. I think the gangster move for Iger, and I think he's probably one of the few people in the world that could have pulled this off. The other guy is uh, Jeff Bukas. He had the credibility to do it. Maybe Murdoch. It would be to, what is Netflix? Netflix doesn't go, oh, it's adult content, call it Hulu. I mean, Disney has one iconic global brand. It's Disney. And then you'd think, well, maybe Star Wars. Netflix has said, okay, it's just Netflix. It's Netflix kids. It's Netflix sports. I think Disney should have done a grand bargain. I also think they screwed up with their pricing. I think they're a luxury brand. I wouldn't have come in below Netflix. I would have signaled to the marketplace, all right, playtime's over. We're fucking Dumbo. You're paying 20 bucks a month for this, right? I mean, Disney everywhere, premium price, premium product. Disney is the brand for everything. Simply put, do you love your kids? If the answer is yes, you have to have this. Do you love your kids? We yes. have the best content in the world. We have the best weekends, the best content, and the best kind of educational material in the world, all right, that's not how you roll with your kids? As opposed to, okay, we got to capture the sports, we got to capture that. It would have cost them billions in short-run revenue because they'd have to pull their shit. How much would you pay, the next Star Wars that's coming out, how much would you pay to have it seven days early in your home? Probably $50. You pay more than that, Arya. I know how you roll. <laughs> I know how you roll. I have to save money for my suits. Oh, my gosh. <laughs> I think people would pay a lot of money. And I think they could have different levels. They could have kind of Disney flicks and then Disney master the universe or whatever they call it. I would go with different levels, but I think it should have been one big offering. But this is a a, a, a rave. You've hit the issue of being a public company because there's a sequencing to these things, right? That maybe sometimes goes against logic and reason because you're trying to bring people along, namely shareholders, by not spending all the capital day one. So that's why you have the lower price, you build the audience, you build the cash flow stream. You prove out the strategy, and then you could do that later. But boldness comes with a cost in some cases, right? Yeah, but this is the thing about Bob Iker. Like, he's 69. 
the guy looks 45, but he's, I found someone told me he was 69. I'm like, Jesus, what face cream is he using? He's one of the few people in the world that has the credibility with the investor markets to say, okay, everybody, hold hands, gather around the campfire. We're competing with people with low cost of capital. We got to do something dramatic here. And I think this was over-strategized by all the MBAs. No, we don't want to give up the short-term revenues from Hulu. ESPN, which is an unbelievable brand, I get it. I think it should have been one grand bargain offering. That's what Amazon is. Amazon's a grand bargain. Yeah. It's like, okay, you can store your photos, get the marvelous Mrs. Mizell and your vitamin water within 24 hours for 120 bucks a year. So That's who else bargain. is like that out there, like Bob Iger, today or tomorrow? People that you're in touch with or you're thinking about or you're studying where does the boldness sit for the future of our industry? Gosh, that's a really thoughtful, interesting question. You know, I think there's a ton of interesting. I just saw the guy who runs Refinery29. I think those guys are super innovative and creative. I appreciate what John Steinberg tried to do at Cheddar. You yeah, know, we advised on the sale of Cheddar to Yeah, RTs. it's a good outcome, but it's just really hard to get oxygen, you know, in this environment. I'm trying to think who else has done an interesting job. How about in the consumer space? I think there's some incredibly run retail companies. I like the management team at Home Depot. I think the guy who just sipped down Hubert Jolie at Best Buy, I love that he turned around and punched the shark in the nose. They basically took on Amazon. Best Buy was supposed to be dead. Yeah. I love the board there. They just picked a 43-year-old woman to run the company, youngest female CEO, youngest CEO in the S&P 500, and now she joins an entire 22 other female CEOs. Now we're at 4.1% right. of Fortune 500 CEOs. Way too low. Women. So I think there's a ton of interesting leadership out there. I'll be really interested to see what Jeff Katzenberg does, probably one of the best storytellers in the world, and Meg Whitman, probably one of the best operators in the world. Yeah, for Quibi. Plepper at HBO. Yeah. That guy was a gangster. How does anyone bring together that sort of creative talent, keep everyone on the reservation, and make that kind of content? Sopranos, a soldier reviewing pictures of his kids at the shore before he hangs himself. Anything with Hank on the Larry Sanders show. I will be your champion. These guys at HBO... That guy invented magic. Like, put him in charge of something enormously huge, and I'll watch it all the time. So I think that guy showed tremendous leadership. I like what they're doing. Yahoo. I think Yahoo Finance does a really good job. That's yeah. my homepage. I think those guys do a good job. Yeah. Anyway, I can go on and on. I think there's a lot of leadership out there. I think it's not an issue of leadership. It's an issue of an economy where we're not allowing companies, good companies, to get the oxygen they need because there's two players sucking all the oxygen out of the room. We're supposed to have regulatory bodies that when these companies become invasive species and start performing infanticide on promising young companies and start prematurely euthanizing big companies, these guys go in and break them up. It's not punishment. Congratulations. You're amazing. We're breaking your ass up. So my question is, dear FTC, DOJ, where are you? So last question I have, because I'm starting to see a little smile on your face. Just is, tiny. Tiny is about the algebra of happiness. Yeah, this makes no sense as a segue, but yeah, thank you, though. <laughs> you Thank I'm, you. I'm trying to, to, I'm trying to, to figure out how to, that happens. Actually, I would say that there's a great line from Tony Bennett that yeah. says, the beautiful thing about life is the longer you live, it teaches yeah. you how to live it. Yeah. Which I was reminded of when I read about your algebra of happiness. Thanks. So tell me about the smile. Sure. Tony Bennett, by the way. Let's you and I head down to the Four Seasons and have drinks with Angie Dickinson and a highball after watching the Johnny show. <laughs> I mean, you're, literally, Tony Bennett's your cultural reference anyways. Uh, <laughs> thanks for bringing it up. My second book is called The Algebra of Happiness. It went on sale last week. 
basically my most popular class, I distill down a series of algorithms. It's the last class that I've observed around best practices, around the differences between being successful and being successful and happy. And I find the two aren't always correlated. It's a series of equations and then short stories, everything from the ratio of time you spend sweating to watching other people sweat as a forward-looking indicator of your success. Nothing is ever as good or as bad as it seems. Get to a big city. Your zip code and your credentials is a forward-looking indicator of your wealth. What's the algorithm for a successful relationship? But I've tried to distill down, looking at a lot of research, there is no equation for happiness, but there are best and worst practices. And there's a ton of great research out there, and I've tried to distill down the research to a few equations that are hopefully informative, instructive, because the kids I teach, you know, I say kids are 27, they think they're a business school to develop economic security, which is a key component of happiness. But what they're really there is to try and get the ink in their pen such that they can write a story of satisfaction and an arc of a narrative of satisfaction through their life. It's also a journey of personal discovery for me. My sister summed it up well. A couple of years ago, I was on the phone with her on a Sunday night, and she said, why are you so pissed off all the time? And I struggle with anger and what I would call kind of mild depression. And I thought, I got to figure out a way to take my blessings and have them foot to my mood. And right now they don't. I have enormous blessings and I am pissed off all the time. And that's not healthy. Do you think that time will heal that? I hope so. There's an arc of happiness, by the way, a ton of research across demographic and cultural boundaries. And happiness through your age looks like a smile. Zero to 25, Han Solo, Disneyland, exploration, spilling into adulthood, college football. And then 25 to 45 are generally your unhappiest years. Kids are stressful, economic duress. You're likely going to discover that you're not going to have a fragrance named after you or be a senator. And all the things you thought you were capable of, you find out it's harder. Someone you love gets sick and dies, and life hits you like square in the face, right? But this wonderful thing happens in your 50s or younger if you're soulful, and that is you start taking stock of your blessings. You start finding appreciation and beauty and grace and things you didn't even consider when you were younger. And you get happier. And the happiest cohort in the world, despite the fact they should be the least happiest watching CNBC with all their health problems, are seniors. They're the happiest cohort in the world. So the advice to people when they're 30 or 35 and they're really having a tough time and they're struggling, like, boss, that's part of the journey. And just keep on keeping on because happiness does await for you. But there absolutely is an arc of happiness. Right. So you start happy and you end happy. And you that's have to it. weather through the beginning. The beginning and the end. Yeah. Maybe you finish with... Some words of wisdom for us. Oh, that's because, easy. Because or um, lack thereof. You know, we're getting into the summer, the middle chapters of the year. Sure. We are in a point in time where, as I said, you could have a positive perspective of where the world's going, yep. strong economy, yep. you know, connectivity, et cetera, and you could have a negative, pessimistic view. Sure. I like to think that we can influence the outcome yep. versus just being academic about it. Yep. So how do we all take some words of wisdom from Scott Galloway and put it into practice to make ourselves happy sure. in that? last chapter of the year. Thanks for that. That's a generous question. And I'll, again, return to research. I was asked to do the last lecture. So the kids get to pick a professor to come in and do their last lecture before they graduate. And I got to do it this year. And so I did my kind of algebra of happiness talk. The question is always the same thing. What is the one thing? What is the one piece of advice you'd give to people if you wanted to increase the likelihood they would live a satisfying and happy life? And that's a big question, right? The research shows the following. And the largest study on happiness, the Harvard Grant study, tracked 400 men from the age of 19 to 99 is when the last one died. 80 years, they had to swap out principal scientists four times because the principal scientists kept dying. And about 2000, I think, in 14, the study came to an end. 
They took the largest data set ever compiled on longitudinal happiness. They tracked 400 guys, what they ate, their work, their income, their relationships, and then queried them regularly on how happy and how satisfied do you feel. And they found that the cohort that was the happiest had one basic best practice, and that was the depth and number of meaningful relationships in their life. At work, do you feel respected and admired, and do you respect and admire other people? Amongst your friends, do you get a sense of joy and camaraderie, and do they know that they're getting joy and camaraderie from you? And finally, at home, do you feel an intense level of love and support? And just as importantly, do you know that they feel an intense level of love and support from you? And it's got the greatest opening line of any academic study. It's a 400-page study, and the principal scientists decided that the opening line would be happiness is love, full stop. So you want to be happier? Start investing in other people. Start investing in relationships. That is how you get to drop the mic, the number of deep, meaningful relationships. I love it. Good. I hope we'll have one of these someday between us. I like that. <laughs> Thanks, Scott. Hold me. <laughs> Hold I me. I appreciate your being here. Thanks, Ari. Thanks Congrats for your wisdom and insights. Thank you. Thanks. I hope you enjoyed our show today. If you want to check out any prior episodes, you can find us on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you listen. Feel free to leave a review there as it helps people find the show. You can also follow us on Instagram, Twitter, and Facebook at KindredCast for behind the scenes photos and info. Keep listening and see you next time. Audiation.